from Beacon Point. This is Dollars and Cents, a really great podcast about money. Co-host and certified financial planners, Kobe Cress and Karen Reifel, help listeners navigate various life moments and major life events through the lens of personal finance. Contrary to popular belief, these money conversations are not boring. Prepare to be informed and entertained. On this episode of Dollars and Cents, I had the privilege of speaking with Lindsay Larrabee on the topic of money scripts, which are the unconscious beliefs about money which shape our financial health. Lindsay is a consultant at Templar Advisors, where she focuses on financial psychology and behavioral sciences. In today's episode, Lindsay and I discuss the four core money scripts, the effects that certain money scripts have on your financial health, and how to counteract bad money behaviors with checkpoints. I hope you enjoy learning about money scripts as much as I did. And as always, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas, please send them to info at getthesense.com. Lindsay, thanks for joining me today. So good to have you. Glad to be here. Yeah, I think it's going to be an exciting episode. And everybody just heard me give you an introduction, but I think folks would rather hear from you directly. So tell everybody who you are, what do you do? Um, Well, my name is Lindsay Larrabee. As you said, I am with Templar Advisors, and we specialize in everything spoken communication. So we coach executives and client-facing professionals to really just earn more business with their clients through better interactions, better experiences, and overall better relationships through the means of more impactful communication. So everything we do here is based on communication. What do you do in the room and or across the screen from clients. And I head up everything financial psychology and behavioral sciences here. Um, One unique thing about us is actually most of us come from a background in financial services. So all of us understand that world and speak that language. The financial psychology piece, I think is interesting. And I think listeners will really enjoy that. And that's kind of a theme of today, although I'm probably taking us in the wrong direction right off the bat, because we were talking before the show. And when I talk about financial psychology. I'm probably not using that correctly. I know a bit about behavioral finance, right? There's some great writings on that. I think people are more familiar with that. And then there's you know, economic financial behavior. But tell us, when you talk about investor psychology or financial psychology, what do you mean by that? It's quite broad, right? And, and you're right. The, the, the financial industry is really adopting and embracing the psychological aspects of what we do more and more, really at warp speed right now. Um, and the more we hear about it, the more it's really been categorized broadly by behavioral finance. But there are some differences. So I'm glad we started here. Um, so there's a couple of things that financial psychology incorporates. One, it does incorporate behavioral economics. And behavioral economics is more of the field concerned with understanding heuristics, right, biases, and how they impact uh, behaviors as a whole in relation to economic outcomes, right? So very macro-based. Behavioral finance, on the other hand, is also based on these cognitive behaviors, so understanding biases, heuristics, and how they impact our financial decisions, but also, again, going back to just focusing on the biases part, okay, and how you behave with money. Now, financial psychology, actually, it it encompasses both of these areas, but it's much broader, right? Financial psychology includes other methods as well of psychology, theories, methods, everything from social psychology. L&D psychology, clinical psychology, even personality and individual differences. So it's much broader. And, and you know, maybe I'm biased here, but I think that just focusing on the behavioral finance part, just biases, limits 
both investors and advisors and really getting the full picture of incorporating these more intrinsic aspects of financial planning. So you used a term there that I'm familiar with, but uh-huh. others may not be. And I think it's a really important term and we'll probably talk more about it, a heuristic. Can you tell us about uh, a heuristic? We're going to talk about those a little bit today. So tell us what a heuristic is. A heuristic is, is essentially it's the same thing as a, as a bias. It's an unconscious belief that drives how we behave. Mm. Right? And that's, as you said, probably one of the biggest alignments of what we're talking about today, one of the biggest definitions of it. But it, it's part of behavioral finance, but also financial psychology and, and thinking about that these beliefs are what drive our, our spending behaviors, um, You know how we make decisions around money, um, even how we interact with others in our lives around money. Very interesting, excuse me, interestingly enough, we often marry somebody with completely different uh, money beliefs and heuristics, which hence why there's money counseling out there. Interesting. Yeah. They say that's always one of the biggest conflicts in marriage, right? Finances are. And I think finances are such, and you're going to talk more about this and you know much more than me, but just from my experience with clients and doing this every day, finances, money is one of those most deeply held part of P, uh, that people have, right? It's one of the most private uh, pieces. And I think that's probably why you have great interactions with advisors when you're counseling them on how to have these uh, interactions, uh, because they're really talking about something that is immensely core to who an individual is in so many ways. And so uh, I think it's going to be a really interesting episode. I, I was talking to you ahead of time and I said, you know, I tried to create some questions to have an interesting conversation. And I realized I don't know nearly as much as I think I do about this topic. And so I'm glad to have you on as the expert uh, to walk us through this. So the title of the episode has at least in it the phrase money scripts. Uh, And I'm very interested to talk about uh, that with you. And I think that's kind of the core of what we're talking about today. So what is a money script? Talk to us about money scripts. Yeah, I think it's important to define them from a couple angles. What are they, right? Where do they come from? And of course, why do they matter? Um, So money scripts are unconscious beliefs that we've all developed about money. Um, And inherently, they drive all of our money behaviors and tendencies. So essentially, money scripts reveal why you make the money choices that you do. And more often than not, these beliefs are incomplete, right? They're partial truths, sometimes even conflicting truths, which means they incorporate components of both truth and falsehood, right? In each and every money script we have. Now, where do they come from? Well, as with many things, they're developed in childhood and they are transgenerational, right? Which means what your grandparents experienced with money and behaviors, maybe in in times of the depression, right? Those got passed down to their kids, your parents, which inherently got passed down to you. So these are transgenerational beliefs that we absorb in childhood um, that are shaped by both the explicit and the implicit messages that we receive about money. I often refer to these, these sort of big moments and experiences with money as financial flashpoints, right? That we pick up not just from our parents, certainly they're the primary, but from our parents, other significant people in our lives, our societal circumstances, and also the community that surrounds us. And of course, why do they matter? Next big question, why should we care? In other words, well, there's been hundreds of studies done on money scripts over the years that have proven money scripts are very strong predictors of things like your level of income, your net worth, right? your financial behaviors, patterns, tendencies, especially those that may be destructive, um, and even things like revolving credit card debt and, and other types of debt that we carry. So as you know, these things can massively 
make our life easier or a bit harder. The interesting thing that I, I find about all this is that more than our financial matters themselves, what actually predicts more satisfaction in life are our psycho- psychological perceptions about our financial matters. So money scripts really drive all of those. It was interesting when you said about transgenerational money scripts, because I just finished recently Sam Walton's book on the founding of Walmart. And throughout that book, he talks about the fact that one of the reasons Walmart was able to be as successful and keep prices as low as they do, right? Everyday low prices, I think is Walmart's... uh, If I'm getting that wrong, somebody correct me. Everyday low prices, I think is the thing. And he talks about it's because his parents grew up in the depression. Uh, And so that was handed down to him where they just understood as children the value of a dollar and they never wasted one. And there's a story in that book about one of the early presidents of Walmart. Uh, Sam Sam Walton went into a Walmart to talk to somebody and the president dropped a quarter on the ground and and said to the group they were with, watch this. And when Sam Walton came out, Sam Walton walked right up to him, looked down and said, hey, a quarter and bent down and picked up a quarter, right? At the time, he was the wealthiest man in America. But growing up with, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you know, some people, you know, you see, and everybody I think is getting to the point where they step over a penny because I see a lot of pennies out there, but at least a quarter, almost everybody will bend down to pick it up. But you'd think, you know, now I don't know who the richest person is, maybe Jeff Bezos, but you'd think, you know, he might step over a quarter, but maybe not because he may have ingrained money scripts that he really can't overcome, right? That is, he needs to understand them. And that's what we're talking about today. So anyways, I digress back to you, but I think it's very interesting. So on money scripts, uh, are they set scripts? Is everybody's script custom? Is it kind of like a strength finders test where you get kind of assigned a script? How does that work? Yeah, well, there's there's really four primary ones that have been identified and they are unique to each person, right? Because they're shaped by our own experiences and what we've seen growing up. And they can, when you ask if they're set, right? Well, yes, in a sense, because they're unconscious. Unless you can start building awareness and putting in some sort of you know, checkpoints, roadblocks, um, you know, giving yourself more opportunity to not let them get in the way uh, to drive perhaps destructive behaviors or decisions that may not serve you as well as they could. So what are those four? Can you run through those four for us? I can run through those four. Um, And I'll tell you, we all fall on a scale. Okay, so it's really important before I run through them to know that we're all going to have some level of these. And the higher your score in each of these means more present that money script is, the more influential it is in your behaviors, your tendencies with money. Um, And then the lower your score, uh, it's still there, but it's not as impactful. So... um, just down the list, I'll describe them one by one in a moment, but we call these first and foremost money avoidance, money worship, money status, and money vigilance. So I'll run through these one by one to just give you a high level on each of them. Money avoidance is, um, it suggests those beliefs that in a sense, money is bad, right? Money avoiders often believe that maybe they don't deserve money. Um, they may have the mindset that wealthy people are greedy corrupt, perhaps selfish, right? And there's this belief that um, there's some sort of virtue in living with less money. Um, Now, what's interesting about money avoidance is that if you look at the demographics of folks that tend to fall into this category a little bit more, oftentimes they're going to be a bit younger, um, you know, single at that point, maybe less educated, but not limited to these. But many times, especially nowadays, you're seeing they may have grown up in actually higher 
socioeconomic statuses, right? But I can tell you money avoidance is very much associated with things like lower levels of income, right? Um, Certainly lower net worth in their lives, but they're predictive. Money avoidance is very predictive of things like compulsive buying, right? Hoarding disorder, um, financial enabling, meaning you enable others to not be financially independent, right? But also financial dependence for these folks, right? Depending on others. Uh, many times, if they did come from higher socioeconomic backgrounds, these are the people you see giving away money a bit too much, hence the financial enabling, because it's sort of cool in a sense to have less. Um, so that's money avoidance. Any questions before I move on to money status? <laughs> no, it was interesting. I would not have guessed that somebody that falls more on the scale, and I think that was a really important thing that you brought up. And maybe we should take a step back and say that, yeah. you know, for clients and those that are listening to this podcast, a big chunk of which just happen to be clients of Beacon Point, uh, but there are others. Uh, the reason that we have you speaking kind of directly to them is that uh, your job is really to assist professionals to understand their clients better so that they can aid them specific to their personality, biases, heuristics, right? That's what you're trying to do. So in this case, we've just cut out the middleman and you're (laughs) helping clients directly understand better about themselves, how they maybe unconsciously think about money or maybe some of their behaviors so that, especially on the destructive side of things, they can put checkpoints in place, right? Or find help where they need it. Am I, do you think I'm summarizing that okay? Uh, Exactly. And so for clients who are listening to this right now saying, okay, let me see if I identify with this. You might recognize money avoidance behaviors in yourselves that look like things like, you know, perhaps not looking at your financial statements very often. Mm. Maybe I'll tell you this shows up. This I've worked on it very hard, but it's shown up for me in my life by not opening my mail. Why? Because I developed this belief that seeing my mom grow up with a single mom opening mail and opening bills, right? There was always this very negative reaction. So I developed this this <laughs> aversion to mail, if you will. Um, it also might look like just ignoring not thinking about money. So ignoring statements, ignoring the fact that you've overspent, not looking at receipts. Those people say, no, 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 I don't need a receipt. (laughs) Um, Or enabling maybe supporting adult children for a very long time. So these are some of the patterns you can look for to say, hmm, am I susceptible to the money script of money avoidance? Here's an interesting... uh, uh, Well, actually, I shouldn't categorize my own thought as interesting, but it was interesting in my mind to think... I imagine there's positive sides to each of these too, right? There's the the things to look out for, but also the strengths, right? So for money avoidance, that maybe sounds like a negative. uh, Mm -hmm. And I I thought this because I think, you know, I might be somebody that says, "Ah, I don't need a receipt. So maybe I'm money avoidance. I'm not sure. That's probably not what I I am since I work in finance, but maybe because I do uh, tend to go, "Ah, I don't need the receipt. But what are the strengths uh, when it comes to money avoidance? Well, I'll tell you, there's the first three that I'm going to walk through, they're actually more, they're, they're considered negative money scripts. So there's not as many strengths. The, the point is you want to be aware of it. And actually, um, if you know you're money avoidant prone to give yourself processes to, all right, it's time to look at that statement. It's time to open the mail this week. Um, there's not that many positives to it. What I will say though, is it's not saying that you're a bad person because you'll see people actually make life decisions based on money scripts. So for example, um, career choice. A lot of folks who are money avoidant tend to end up in careers such as um, I don't helping careers, helping professionals, right? So things maybe like psychologists, social workers, teachers, right? And in a sense, they're able to do good because that's they feel this virtue in that, but knowing that they may not be earning as much wealth, but they're perfectly fine with that. 
And that's all okay, right? Because your level of happiness, again, it doesn't really depend on your financial matters as much as your psychological perceptions about money. So if you feel it's not a good thing to have that much money and you, well, design your life around that essentially, then you're going to be happy with that, right? But it can be destructive if anything's to excess. So when you take this assessment, which we'll get into the resource of where to find that later, there's a scale um, and the scale goes up to four. So really any points below three, you have a little bit of it, but it's not going to be too destructive for you. That makes sense. And and to listeners out there, like I said at the beginning, I'm exploring this with you uh, because Lindsay and I went through this a bit, uh, but we wanted to save some of it for uh, the podcast. So it sounds like it's making more sense that everybody probably has a little bit of all of these. It's really, these are more characteristics that maybe all of us have, money scripts are, but it's really just how strong are they? How loud are they in your subconscious relative to each other that probably determines which ones overpower others uh, when you're making these decisions? Exactly. How influential are they in driving behaviors? That makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. So uh, I interrupted us, but you went through the first one. Uh, and number two, I think, is worship. So talk to us about money worship. Yeah. So money worship um, is really defined as people who associate money with things like safety, happiness, and or power. So this mindset of maybe you hear people around you say things like, you know, things would just get better if I had more money or Um, The belief that, you know, money is the key to happiness or you can never have enough money. Or maybe you hear, I I certainly know people around me who say things like, listen, life is short. You got to live a little. You only live once. Time to buy that sports car. So these are folks who oftentimes grew up in lower socioeconomic statuses because they didn't have money. And and perhaps um, even families who really highlighted the value in having more money, really held those who had it at a much higher um, perception. Um, however, right, money worship behaviors, just like money avoidance, is associated with, you know, again, lower net income, excuse me, lower income, lower net worth, um, certainly associated with carrying more consistent revolving credit card debt. Um, it actually predicts a lot of the same uh, disorders and money behaviors as money avoidance. So again, compulsive buying, some hoarding, enabling, financial dependence, workaholism, in fact, mm. right? Because if you're worshiping money, you can never have enough. These are the people that may find themselves putting, you know, work before the family balance. So again, not many positives with this one as well, but it's something if you're aware of it, now you can start taking action on it. It's a little bit of the keeping up with the Joneses, maybe, right? You're, you're willing to run up the credit card debt because the appearance of having more uh-huh. is of value to you. You It brings value to your life to have that appearance, it sounds like. I would say it is somewhat like that. It's more of really, it's that security, that happiness mm. factor associated with money. Now, what you're getting into actually takes us perfectly into the next one, money status, which uh. is exactly that, Kobe. It's, it's keeping up with the Joneses. And these people are your, their mindset is your net worth is defined by an equal to your self-worth. Right. So they are completely dependent and equal to each other. And so thus, if you don't have enough net worth, your self-worth is not worth much either. And these people actually prioritize that outward display of wealth. Right. So these are the folks that, as you said, will run up more credit card debt because gotta have that fancy watch, right? The newest car in the block, if the neighbors got that. Um, and if it's not the best, then it's not worth buying. Right. So that's more of the money status perspective. And again, 
oftentimes similar to money worship, grew up in lower socioeconomic environments. And so thus it's almost, again, that outward demonstration of, look, I made it kind of mindset. And it does predict, similar to the other two, money status does predict more compulsive buying, um, also gambling. You see that a little bit more with folks with this. And then certainly the financial dependence, but also something very interesting, um, it predicts financial infidelity. It's kind of a dirty word here, but keeping more secrets with money, maybe hiding mm-hmm. more of that. Interesting. Okay, so that's three yeah. of the four. And they're all a little bit depressing here. So I, I'm excited to get on the other side of it where we can yeah. solve some of the problems. Because uh-huh. And I think when you do these types of exams or, or you're talking about it, you start seeing yourself in all of them a little you bit. You're like, oh, oh goodness, that might be me a little bit too. You know, As you're going through these, I keep thinking that. Yeah. Well, the good news is, um, so we have covered three of the four. The fourth one is actually a positive money script. Um, so there is some light in the tunnel. But of course, to every positive, like I said, there's some negatives. But the fourth one is money vigilance. and People who are money vigilant are those who are very um, alert, watchful. Um, they are concerned with their financial health. So I'd say really anybody who's working with a financial advisor does have some money vigilance in the first place, right? They prioritize making good money decisions, good spending decisions. And these are people who oftentimes have that mindset of, you know, you shouldn't tell people how much money you make, you're at secret. Um, and and money's meant to be saved, not necessarily spent. And they, what money vigilance correlates with is is less revolving credit. They're much less likely to buy on credit. Um, certainly, higher income, higher net worth, and less likelihood to keep financial secrets. And actually, have a negative prediction to all the other factors we talked about: that compulsive buying, um, gambling, financial dependence, infidelity, um, financial enabling. So this is a positive one, but. On the flip side, it can be a bit extreme. Right? These are people who could fall more into, be more prone to hoarding, right? And maybe not spending and enjoying the money they've they've made, right? So there are some things to be aware of. They can be a little bit more anxious about their financial health, and and sometimes need a little bit more support from their financial professionals. So some of that. But imagine when you get on the farther end of that spectrum. It probably does, at least for a lot of folks, it probably does tie back into that transgenerational um, money script, right? Because I I think first and foremost, I work with a lot of retirees and there are just certain retirees that they have worked their whole lives. They've saved, they've done an amazing job. They've been vigilant their entire Mm -hmm. lives. And now they're in retirement. It's time for them to enjoy and they really struggle to spend the money they've saved. And it's because they've seen it in a family member who maybe struggled more with uh, some of these other money scripts. And so it has caused them to be hypervigilant and what they end up doing is maybe living on half of what they really could have and not enjoying it nearly as much. So uh, I imagine there's probably a lot that ties into that generational aspect. There is. And, and I actually do a lot of work these days on generational biases as well when it comes to incorporating behavioral finance into financial planning. Generational biases do play a role. And they play a role in, in you know not only our, our daily behaviors and biases, but also in our scripts. And you know I, I look back and have done a lot of assessment, obviously, on myself with this stuff. And I look at the messages that I started learning very young about money. And my dad had so many sayings. And one of them was, you save until it hurts. And the other one was, the only true freedom you'll get in this life is freedom from debt. So you can imagine, you could probably guess what my money script is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, I, yes. And it, that is the interesting thing about going through these is that in all of them, you start to see you, you, it really, and that's probably 
the value of doing this. And we're going to get into how uh, folks can go take an assessment like this. Yeah, it really is the value of it, right? Because you have to understand these things about yourself. You want to understand why you make the decisions that you make, because if you don't, then you're not going to be able to put those checkpoints in place. I love the idea of checkpoints. We'll talk more about that. And not only that, but you know, as, as people who are trying to develop their own mind behaviors, thinking about the next generation and being more conscious of this stuff. This stuff's transgenerational. How can you be more conscious about the behaviors you're displaying and the messages you're sending to your, your kids about money? So let's hope we've convinced folks that there's value in knowing this. I think we have. I'm going to give us credit and say we, we've done enough to convince folks. Where would they go to do an assessment like this? Yeah. Well, there's so many tools out there. Um, but the, the, the probably easiest one that I would send folks to, and it's a free tool, it's called the, the Klontz Money Script Inventory. And Klontz, um, based off of Dr. Bradley and Ted Klontz, who were my professors when I went to school for this. And you can find that at your mentalwealthadvisors.com. So it's a five-minute assessment at yourmentalwealthadvisors.com called the Klontz Money Script Inventory. It takes about five minutes and then it'll give you your scores for each of these four money scripts. And with that, a full description of what does it mean to have a higher or lower score. And I actually um, sent my money scripts to my advisor <laughs> this week, whom you know, and he walked through and said, wow, we really got to talk about these because I know I'm aware of this stuff and listen, I'm an expert at this stuff, but I'm still human and I can use someone else to help me put in some checkpoints in place to ensure um, I'm making the best money decisions for myself. It is the very nature of a bias and a heuristic that even, even experts are subjected to their influence, right? Because that is just the way they are. You may be less subjective to it than those that maybe aren't experts, myself included, but even you are, are probably prone to them. So uh, I think there's immense value there. And for those who could not, could not spell clonts, which I could not do, and, yep. and weren't writing down the link uh, to, the, uh, to the assessment, we will put that in the show notes. So you don't have to write it down. Just go to the show notes and it will be there for you. Yeah, it's you're absolutely. I mean, we as humans, that's what makes us human is we can convince ourselves of anything. But I'll also say on that then, you know, if you work with an advisor and you're going to share some of these, it's really important for your advisor. So Kobe, this is your homework. You have to go out and take this assessment yourself because your advisor scripts can get in the way too, right? Just as anyone's biases. So that's an interesting point. You talked about this when we were preparing for the show. Um, and you talked about it a little bit a moment ago when it comes to marriage, but Money scripts, different individuals who have different money scripts can lead to different types of interactions. I don't want to say conflicts because it's not always conflict, but it leads to different types of interactions. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. So you know, one of the the aspects of if, if you are somebody who wants to start incorporating more of these intrinsic aspects into your financial planning, we call this integrated financial planning, right? There's the extrinsic aspects, which are the numbers, the net worth, all of that good stuff. The intrinsic are your money behaviors, your beliefs, your psychology behind some of that. And the definition of financial psychology also encompasses the interaction between the individual and anyone providing financial advice because there's such a major role in the outcomes, right? And so the, the goal with using this stuff is to get one, better financial outcomes, two, to have your expectations met more effectively, which obviously advisors play a big role in that. So um, I don't know if that answers it completely, but what I'm saying is anyone involved in your financial processes should be educating themselves on these tools 
on how to use them and what they mean for themselves first before trying to give any sort of advice or incorporate them into their planning process. I'm going to take a crack at um, maybe an example to see if I'm if I'm tracking with you. So let's say as an advisor, you take an assessment and you come through as money status very high, right? That's a that's a high priority for you, um, and and maybe that makes you more prone to gambling or buying that fancy watch or using credit. If you are giving advice and that is your money's primary money script, you would hope it would be vigilance, but maybe it's status. Then you may give advice that tends to push people more in the direction of your preferences to say, yeah, it's absolutely okay to buy that on credit, right? Uh, when your clients come to you and say, we don't really know if we can afford that. You, as a fiduciary, you would hope you wouldn't do that, but we do have these biases where it could impact the advice you give. So you need to understand that about yourself, I think is what you're saying. Yes, exactly. Um, and and more likely to encourage yeah, some of those big purchases or maybe even take on a little bit more risk. Right. And so I also want to be clear that, you know, this isn't the only tool out there. Right. But if you were to use something like this, there's really three steps you'd want to think about. First and foremost, you take the assessment, right? Klon's money script inventory. Um, you go to the website, yourmentalwealthadvisors.com, take it, view the results. The second step then is to reflect, because as I said, these are these beliefs are developed in your childhood. Your second step is to reflect on, all right, well, what did I learn about money growing up? You know, what are my what are some of my earliest money memories, both good and the bad? Um, what were some of the most memorable moments, experiences, like these financial flashpoints that I mentioned earlier? Um, and what are the beliefs that I've developed because of those? Then the third step is, okay, well, once I've identified this list of beliefs, so journal about it, what, which of these have been the most prominent for me? And, and then ask yourself two questions with these prominent beliefs. One, how have they helped me and or hurt me in the financial decisions I've made so far? How have they showed up? And then two, start thinking about some ideas of what can I do to start changing some of these beliefs and these behavioral patterns with money? And hence, leading into some of the checkpoints. And the checkpoints that I often discuss um, are the same checkpoints I talk about when I um, coach on behavioral sciences for decision-making, right? The arts of decision-making, things like giving yourself a longer-term view, right? Things that, these are things you can work on with your advisor. Um, going in towards more of goals-based planning or sort of mental accounting in a way, like setting your, your money for certain things. And then implementing one of the biggest proven uh, roadblocks is just implementing some systematic processes. And that can be, you know, automated, that can be you know, the dynamic of working with your financial planner. Every time you're about to make a major money move, you have a process, we have a conversation, we give it some time, we wait a week, right? So some processes in place to help you not let these biases and or money scripts get in the way of good sound decisions that may lead to you know, potentially destructive impacts if you don't take the right approach. So you made me think of habit in general. Uh -huh. and I, I read two books this year on habit. I think it was two. One of them was The Habit Loop and the other one was Atomic Habits. And they were both great books. And what I remember, you know, certain things just stick with you when you read a book. And what I remember from, I think it was Atomic Habits, mm -hmm. was this idea of putting in this similar idea of a checkpoint when you're trying to form a habit, right? Mm -hmm. And I, these are money habits to an extent. We're trying to change your money habits and your money biases. So I guess it does. The psychology is probably very similar. But it was the idea of setting these small um, checkpoints, if you will, 
if you want to create a habit, don't say, I'm going to start working out every day. And then the next day, that's your only goal, right? You don't have any steps to get you there. You just say, I'm going to work out every day. Well, you'll probably work out the first day, maybe the second day. You're going to miss the third day. You're going to miss the fourth day. And then all of a sudden, you haven't worked out in six weeks, right? That's usually how it goes. And what they talked about in this book was, um, I can't remember which one it was, but one of the two was, um, instead of having a goal uh, or, or a step to just work out, have a step to put your shoes on. Right? Yeah. And then and, and put your workout clothes on, right? And and then for the first day, don't force yourself to work out if you don't want to. Just make, force yourself to put your shoes on, right? And then and then maybe once you have that every day, you're putting your workout clothes on. Then maybe you can switch and force yourself to go uh, get in your car, right? And it's a stepped process. And what they talk about, and I found it true. I try to implement it in my own life a bit. Anything, but let's just use workout. Oh, that's a passion of mine. But you know, let's let's use it as an example. You put your shoes on. All of a sudden, now that your shoes are on, it's just so much easier to go to the gym, right? I'm ready to go. I'm just going to go do it because I did this first. Uh Yeah. And that's actually, I mean, as I said, my background is behavioral sciences. That's the fundamentals of all behavioral science, right? So behavioral science says, if you want to change a behavior, right? If you want to start doing it, you need to make it easier. If you want to stop a behavior, you got to give yourself these blockages that make it harder. So in your example of going to the gym, right? If I were to try and push myself to start working out, which I'm, I'm starting it again <laughs> soon. Um, I've started putting my clothes out the night before. I've prepared my drink. It's in the fridge, ready to go. So all I have to do, it's already out, is get dressed, grab the drink and go out the door. Versus if I had to do all these things in the morning, it's just a little bit harder and I'm less likely to do it. If you're trying to break a habit, for example, um, let's say you're trying to stop smoking, right? It's about, well, let's make it harder. Well, I'm going to go ahead and take the cigarettes and I'm going to lock them in a box and I'm going to put the key in the attic and I'm going to put the box in the car. So now I've got 10 other steps in my way to have to to get there. So it's all about making things easier that you want to improve, make things harder that you want to stop. So we're right there. How do we apply that to money scripts? (laughs) How do we apply it to money scripts? The question of the day. So this is where... It's about if you're thinking about processes, okay? So let's say overspending, right? If you recognize some of the stuff in yourself, maybe you have the money worship, some of the money status and, and overspending is something you've noticed, maybe a partner. It's what can you do to make overspending harder? And I've seen clients sometimes say, well, I've created a whole nother account that only has so much money in per week. And I, when I leave the house and I want to go shopping, I only take the card that has access to that account. I actually leave all the other cards at home. Right. So putting these things in place that make it hard for you to do. And your advisor, you know, working with a financial planner or any financial professional you work with has some of these tricks that they utilize and they can talk to you about if there's certain money behaviors you're recognizing in yourself, you want to change. And putting a plan in place with somebody else actually highly increases your likelihood of being successful with that plan. Right? It's like having that accountability buddy. It's kind of like writing it down too. I imagine you would encourage folks, if you have a goal, write it down, right? Because you're 82%, something like that, more likely to accomplish it if you write it down. And certainly as an advisor, I'm more than happy to be an accountability buddy because I'm also the person that has to give the bad news when people are overspending, right? And I hate having those conversations. And I, But I always promise my clients I will have them as long as I know about the problem because that's my responsibility, but I hate doing it. So I'd rather be the accountability but, uh, buddy ahead of time. Uh, on those things. And he talked about um, that. Oh, go ahead. I, I uh, Something on that. It's walking through the steps. So the assessment first, then reflecting on your beliefs. What are they? 
and how have you shaped them? And then, as I said, in that third step, it's reflecting which ones have helped you and hurt you. And the second part of that is really brainstorming with your advisor. What can I do to change some of these things? What kind of processes can we put in place? Roadblocks, checkpoints. But also, you know, I encourage if, if this is stuff that makes sense for for individuals and their advisors, there's other tools out there too that really create more of a holistic picture if you want to go deeper with intrinsic planning. So it's not just the money scripts, but there's also um, money behavior inventory assessments you can do that measure money disorders, right? For the whole family, if you're trying to maybe think about uh, passing down wealth, right? So money disorders, um, financial health scales, which measure your overall financial health, money disorders, risk planning, right? And just overall self-care with money. So incorporating all of these can really, it guides attention to where attention is needed for better financial health. Hmm. I talk quite a bit with folks that I feel like the term financial planning is almost hard to use because so often what folks have experienced, and I'm biased in this, but I believe it is different at Beacon Point. I know it's different with my clients. People hear financial planning. What they have come to associate that with is you're going to ask me a lot of boring questions and you might ask me for a budget and then you're going to plug it all into some kind of program. And then you're probably going to send me a cash flow statement and that's it, right? And so what I've always tried to do is redefine financial planning when I start working with folks and say, it is so much more than that. And if somebody has told you that and you've had a bad experience, I'm, I'm sorry for that, but let's re reestablish what it really is, right? It's estate planning and tax planning and uh, risk assessment. And it's this piece as well. It's let's understand what is most important to you. Let's understand why you make the decisions that you make, what kind of tolerances you have. And that is what financial planning should be. And that's why I think this is such an important conversation as well. That, that what we're calling, we call it integrated financial planning. Because as you said, what most people think of, that's the, the extrinsic, the external factors of it. There's also some internal components that are really important. And I think that's exactly, you put it perfectly. So I like the idea of checkpoints. So we've talked about one, right? And there's a billion checkpoints and hopefully your advisor can help you with those. And some of the other resources we'll talk about as well. But what about on the money avoidance? Uh, what are checkpoints that uh, are common for people that are that are struggle with money avoidance? So it's interesting. I Your scripts can change if you've done some work. And I'll tell you, when I originally was going through school for this stuff, I actually showed up with a, a higher money avoidance score, um, but also some money vigilance, which is kind of interesting. Um, I recently retook this right before we, we had this conversation to say, well, what's changed? And my money avoidance has the scores gone down, which means I've gotten better with that. But I'll tell you, it depends how money avoidance is showing up for people. So for me, the way it showed up is I wouldn't hire a financial advisor because I didn't want to talk about money. It took me up until only two years ago to do that. Um, I wouldn't look at my statements. I wouldn't even open my mail. And I just put everything on automatic so that you know I, I wouldn't get any late fees or anything like that. But I knew things were getting paid, but I didn't have to think about it. And I had to put processes in place to say, okay, on this day, every week, I need to go through that stack of mail. <laughs> and um, I need to be very diligent about reviewing my finances with my advisor and actually hire somebody who's on my side for this. If I don't want to think about it, at least I have somebody else thinking about it for me to make sure I don't miss anything. So if you know that you're prone to that, then it's taking the steps that are going to help you know, cover yourself essentially. So somebody that struggles with money avoidance, 
and they know, they, they know in their heart of hearts, they haven't even done the assessment yet, but they just know they struggle with this just from our conversation. What's the first step? What's the first checkpoint? What is the equivalent of putting your shoes on or making your drink and putting it in the refrigerator? Well, I would say the first step is always the hardest as with anything. It's thinking about why do I view money as bad? Why do I view people with money negatively? Where does that come from? Because a lot of times that's rooted in something a bit deeper. Now, that doesn't sound very easy, like putting your shoes on. Um, So the first step I would say is you need to identify how it's showing up for you and choose one. So maybe for me, I said I wasn't looking at statements. I wasn't working an advisor. I wasn't opening mail. um, And I wasn't reviewing my finances on a regular basis. First step for me was, you know what? A lot of that feels like a lot. Let me just set a process in place to start opening my mail to see what my bills are, right? I have my automatic pay. I don't even want to see them, but I have to. So give yourself sort of a map to start working through. And there's always going to be multiple components of how this stuff shows up, right? Maybe you find yourself, I don't know, if you're if you're somebody who has money worship, money status, right? You find yourself going shopping every weekend. Make sure, maybe one step might be, I'm only going to shop two days a month, right? Now I'm going to do it any way I want those two days a month, right? But the other days, I'm going to make other plans. So I don't go to the stores. I'm thinking through here. <laughs> this conversation has been so informative. I've spent a great amount of time thinking through my own. I'm thinking, man, that's a good idea. How would you implement? Yeah, I have some things on automatic too. I should probably open that bill a little bit more. So it is really eye-opening. I think just, I, I imagine doing the assessment is probably the best first step, right? Do the assessment so you have an idea. Yeah. And then once you have an idea... Think about um, you know what is that next step, and for a lot of people, that might that next step might be call your advisor or yeah. find an advisor, right? Because maybe money avoidance means you need to bring somebody in that you can avoid by having them professionally keep an eye on it for you and guide those conversations. That's probably good. And on the flip side, if you're a money status person, find an advisor to say, hey. Maybe we set this up so that you're going to manage the cash flow for me and only a certain amount of money is going to make it in my bank account every month. And that's the money I can spend. And I know I can spend it, but you control the cash flow, right? And so I don't have $100,000 sitting in my bank account because I just moved it over and now I really want to spend it. I think that's where I feel like you can add value as an advisor. Yeah. And that's a very easy first step. Just take the assessment, just see where you sit and then reflect on it and then see how it's showing up for you. And I know. Kobe, when you and I talked earlier, you, you specifically were asking about, I think it was, was it personality traits that predict more financial success? Was that? Yes. What yes. was on mind with that? Yes. Uh, you know, when you work with so many different people, you do start to see patterns. But I think if you, if you're looking towards financial success, I think people work with advisors and they work mm-hmm. with, um, and, or they listen to this podcast. Uh, they, they read Dave Ramsey, whatever it is because they're looking for financial success. But there are personality types that I just see as an advisor that lend to those who tend to be more successful. Are you prone to panic? Right, That's a personality trait. And if you're prone to panic, you're probably going to have a hurdle that you need to find a way to get over when it comes to financial success, because you may panic the next time there's a market decline. And everybody I talk to says, you know, you ask them, did you, have you ever sold because of widespread market declines? And the ones that are willing to say, I did. And I probably should have just left it be, right? Because in hindsight, they realized they they missed out and they and they um, put a hurdle that wasn't uh, needing to be there. So 
How do those tie together? Personality traits, money scripts, when you are understanding your money script, are there certain personalities that tend to lend themselves to certain money scripts? You know, I'll I'll answer it and really focusing on the personality types that, that actually research has shown to be most associated and predictive of higher levels of income and net worth. And also, by the way, along with that, just overall success. And when I say overall success, I mean um, better socioeconomic outcomes, job performance, health, academic achievement, right? So there's been um, five personality traits identified. And what's very interesting about these before I share them is that it's found that actually personality traits, the power of personality traits is at least equal to, if not more important than the power of cognitive traits, i.e. your intelligence, when it comes to success and satisfaction in life, all right? So the, the five traits that research has identified most associated with, with this, these types of successes in life is first and foremost, conscientiousness, right? So the tendency to have self-discipline, be motivated, um, be dependable, and, and act in your best interest. Part of what we're talking about today is money scripts and giving yourself these barriers and checkpoints, hence conscientiousness. And this is where advisors can help with some of that stuff. The second one, going to the example you just gave, Kobe, is emotional stability, being predictive of higher income and economic success, this ability to control our impulses and manage negative feelings. The third uh, is identified as openness to a variety of experiences. So openness to trying different approaches, things that maybe don't feel so comfortable, trying different experiences, creativity. The fourth we call internal locus of control. And I don't know, I know you've read a lot, Kobe, you're probably familiar with this, this term locus of control. I am familiar, but I wouldn't, okay. with you being the professional here, I wouldn't even take a crack at it because I, I fear I would get it wrong. I am familiar with it, but explain it for us. So internal locus of control is this belief that um, our actions, our behaviors control our outcomes, right? So those with an external locus of control are those with the mindset of, well, life is just happening to me. There's no correlation with my decisions and my behaviors. It's just a matter of luck and chance and you know, the belief that it's totally unpredictable and controlled by others, right? And that would be an external locus of control, yeah. correct? But with yeah. internal locus of control is, is the fourth personality trait of I control the outcomes in my life and my decisions and behaviors directly correlate with those, right? So this, this idea of I'm in control here. And then the fifth one is just, higher confidence, higher self-esteem, really it leads to higher wealth and income. You can see how all these might align with each other. So conscientiousness, emotional stability, openness to new and variety of experiences, internal locus of control, and higher self-esteem. So those have been proven to align with more success, higher income. And very much like money scripts, they're on a scale. And you can change them over time, right? To an extent. I mean, some people have it easier in some of these than others, certainly. You, and we all know somebody that is, you know, has incredible discipline. And then we probably know ourselves and we'd have to admit we don't have as good a discipline as they do, right? Uh, but we can work on it. But so that person might have a leg up. And maybe this is an internal, external locus of control type conversation. But I think um, very much like money scripts, right? When you understand these things uh, and understand that these things um, can lead to financial success or financial failure, well, now we have a roadmap to try to improve these attributes in ourselves, be the best version of ourselves that's going to allow us to be more successful. We have to understand them first. And coach the younger generations on how to build these personality traits and characteristics to set themselves up for success in life. So people are going to take the assessment. They're mm -hmm. going to hopefully put some checkpoints in place. 
have a better understanding of themselves, a better understanding of how they can help future generations, how they can make better financial decisions. But if they want to really take a deep dive in all of this, what are some good resources that are available for folks? Yeah, I'd say there's probably two books that I'd recommend if, if really the money scripts is an area you want to dive deeper into. One is called Mind Over Money uh, by Brad and Ted Klontz. Again, uh, the fathers of financial psychology. Um, and the other one is called Facilitating Financial Health. Um, and this goes even deeper, I'd say, especially if financial planners are you wanting to go deeper with the stuff with your planner. Um, these are tools for financial planners, coaches, even therapists or individuals who just want to really go deeper into the intrinsic aspects of their financial health. So facilitating financial health, mind over money. Um, I'd say those two are really honed in on this area. And once again, for listeners, we'll put a link to both of those in the show notes in case you can't spell clons. Uh, we will have that uh, linked in there for you. So you don't have to worry about writing it down. Just go to the show notes uh, and you can find it there. Lindsay, this has been enormously helpful. And I think we probably will have you back at some point to talk more about money scripts because I think we could probably dive into any individual money script and spend two hours talking about it. Uh, but there's one other topic I wanted to cover with you quickly today before we wrap up. And that was, I know a big part of your practice is an emphasis on financial education for women. And that's enormously important to Beacon Point as well. You and I talked about this before, but a majority of our leadership team, over 50% at Beacon Point, is female. Uh, we have uh, our CEO is a woman, Shannon Yusey. She's amazing. She's co-founder of the firm as well. Um, and we have uh, a couple of resources that we do with education for financial education for women, one of them being the Women's Advisory Institute. We call it WAI, W-A-I. Um, and those are women-only events going through financial topics that uh, kind of led through by female advisors and all those kind of things that may be of interest to women or questions that we've received from female clients that we try to focus in on that. Uh, and then uh, that we also have a book that was written by uh, a group of our female advisors, Shannon Yusey, some of our leadership called Dollars and Cents, of which this podcast is named, um, that is tailored for women as well uh, and financial topics that maybe are have uh, been exposed as important to women uh, written in a way that's really engaging for women. So I say all that to say, tell us more about um, what your kind of resources and things you do with financial education for women. Uh, well, I take a lot of different angles on this stuff, but it's certainly an area that's personal and passionate for me because um, I am first generation in my family uh, to go to uh, university to you know, come into the white collar arena and just elevate the social status of my family in a sense. So it means a lot to help me elevate other women when it comes to finances. So at my company at Templar Advisors, we have um, coaching programs all around. We call it the Women's Development Series, and these coach from everything from you know women speaking up, negotiations, um, building political capital. Um, we also, I do a lot with uh, engaging female clients differently using financial psychology. So how do women, tons of research on how women think about and behave with money in ways that are different from men, because we are socialized in a way that's different from men, right? So if you can understand and recognize some of these differences, you can, again, put things in the way to get it help yourself and for advisors, help engage women clients differently in a way that's more impactful. Uh, aside from that, separately outside of Templar, I am the co-host of a podcast called Becoming Her, The Journey. And we talk about all sorts of different things, but really our mission is to provide community insights, mentorship to women's of all, women of all walks of life. Uh, we have many series that we talk about, some on relationships, some on um, self-care. We have one of our favorite and most, most popular is Financially Fit Females. 
In which case we have professionals from all sorts of companies come in and talk about what do we need to be thinking about at all stages of our life with money? What are we missing? Um, so it's some very interesting conversations similar to what you do here. Yeah, that's neat. And for those who want to find you, learn more, listen oh. to the podcast, all of those types of things, where do they find you? Um, they can find, well, I'm on LinkedIn, Lindsay Larrabee on LinkedIn. You can go to our website, templaradvisors.com, or you can follow uh, the podcast, Becoming Her the Journey, on iHeartRadio or any of the platforms out there Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcasts. So as we wrap up here, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have asked? Again, I am a rookie when it comes to money scripts as well. Uh, so when we went through everything earlier, was there anything where you thought, Kobe, I wish you would ask this? Nothing comes to mind, but Kobe, I am going to ask right now that you, before you, you post up all the notes for this podcast, you go on and take your assessment and share your money script scores. I will. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. And at the beginning of the episode, or maybe here at the end, I will come back on and add in a, um, a, a blurb so people can know how I did on my money scripts. Uh, so I can start the conversation. I hope any of any clients out there, if you have questions on this, certainly send us an email, info at getthesense.com. Love to answer any questions that you might have. Uh, if you're a client of mine and you want to share, or even if you're not, uh, and you want to take the assessment and send it to me, please do. I'd love to have a conversation with really anybody uh, about this topic because I think it's fascinating. Lindsay, thank you for joining us today. We'll certainly have you on again, uh, and we'll uh, look forward to continuing the discussion on money scripts. That sounds great. Thanks for having me, Kobe. As promised, listeners, I took the Money Scripts assessment shortly after this episode and received my scores. Here are my results. According to the assessment, a score of less than three suggests you do not exhibit the Money Script. I scored a 2.14 for money status and a 2.64 on money avoidance suggesting that these are not exhibited by my money behaviors. Although I will tell you that I certainly see some of my own habits in the descriptions of these, so perhaps they're just less evident than others. According to the assessment, scores between three and four suggest you exhibit some characteristics of the money scripts. And my only script that fell in this category was money worship at a score of 3.5, right in the middle. This was an interesting result for me as I did not relate strongly, or at least consciously, with the definition of this script. But alas, that is why we're talking about biases and heuristics, which are unconscious by definition, so this is certainly something I should work on. Lastly, my highest scoring script, with a score of 4.38, was Money Vigilance, which I'm sure is a relief to any of my clients listening to this episode. According to the assessment, scores higher than four suggest you exhibit many of the characteristics of the money script. Thanks for listening. Find us on social media at Get The Sense and online at beaconpoint.com. That's point with an E. Be sure to check back regularly for new episodes. Until next time, keep your dollars and we'll keep our cents.